Well, this is the second in our series uh, working through the uh, letter of Paul to the Galatians. Uh, last Sunday we heard those uh, strong words that uh, our reading this morning began with the importance of holding fast to the true gospel um, to the point that anyone who preaches a false gospel uh, is to be considered cut off from God himself. Last Sunday I asked the question, what is the gospel? And we saw that question answered in Galatians 1, 3 to 5. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory for ever and ever. Amen. What is the gospel? Well, it is that the kingdom of God has come in and through Jesus, who is both Lord and Christ. Jesus, who laid down his life to redeem us from judgment and slavery to sin and who guarantees our hope in the renewal of all things when he returns at the end of the age. And as a result of God's work in Christ, we now know grace and peace from the Father, received through faith. This is the Gospel, the Gospel that we must never turn away from. Because if we do, as we saw last week, we'll be forsaking Christ himself. And we must be sure that we preach no other Gospel, because if we do, will be accursed. Now the question I want to ask us today, which is answered in today's passage, is if this is the true gospel, then how does a person become a true Christian? This may be a question you've never really thought about, especially if you were maybe born into a Christian family and can't remember necessarily the first time that you believed in Jesus. Or maybe you've thought about it a lot, especially if you can point to that time in your life when you first believed. And uh, we might answer answer that question with uh, a simple answer by believing in Jesus, the Son of God, uh, who is risen from the dead. And we certainly see that whenever the Gospel is proclaimed in the book of Acts, it's always coupled with the call, the call to repent and believe. Now that call isn't part of the Gospel itself, but it's the response that God requires of all who hear the Gospel. Remember we saw in Mark chapter 1, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the Gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. So Jesus proclaimed the gospel which is the kingdom of God is at hand. But he also calls people to repent and believe in the gospel. But it's important for us, in fact vital for us to see that What makes a person a Christian isn't actually their response to the Gospel. 
It is the gospel itself that does it. Romans 1.16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See how faith is necessary, not as a work that I do, but as a means by which I receive this power of God that's at work in me to save me. This power of God is in the gospel, not in my response. It's God speaking to me in the message of Christ crucified and risen, not my words of confession to God. Faith isn't something that I do that produces salvation or which triggers some kind of response in God to then save me. Otherwise, faith would become a work. Faith is my response to the salvation that's already been accomplished in the death of Jesus. Salvation which has been applied to me by the renewing and regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. Without this powerful work of God in me, I wouldn't have the capacity or the inclination to even believe or repent. So while it's true to say that a person must believe in Jesus in order to be a Christian, we need to see that the actual way in which I become a Christian is through the sovereign work of God in me. Faith isn't the cause of my salvation. It is, in a way of speaking, the evidence of my salvation. And if my salvation is real and living, then so too will my faith be real and living and it will produce fruit, the fruit of my lips that confess that Jesus is Lord and the fruit of my life reflecting his lordship in the way that I live. Now later in the year we'll, we'll explore this a lot deeper when we go through the book of James. Our works don't save us but they are a testimony to the salvation that God has already done. So here in our passage, Paul's primary concern is to defend the gospel that he brought to the Galatians, but he uses his own story of conversion and his subsequent journey to support this claim in verses 11 and 12 that the gospel he preaches isn't another person's invention. It's come straight from Jesus Christ himself. Now, I don't know if that's readable or not, uh, but there's a bit of a timeline there of Paul um, and his relationship with the Galatian Christians and you can see the different references there in the book of Acts and in uh, Galatians. And uh, as you can see, it covers a period of um, over 30 years between Paul's conversion and um, we we don't know exactly when Paul died, but possibly when... Peter writes his letters to the Christians in Galatia, encouraging them to listen and read Paul's letters. Uh, Paul may have already by then been, been martyred. Being Galatians, Paul covers very quickly a 14-year period because he wants to emphasise that in that time, 
he only visited Jerusalem twice. Uh, Three years after becoming a Christian and only seeing Peter and James in that visit. And then again, 11 years later, so 14 years after his conversion, and even then not in a public way. And the point he's making here, I believe, is that he... He's saying, I'm not a disciple of the apostles. He wasn't doing his ministry under the authority of the apostles with a second-hand gospel. But he was doing it under the authority of Jesus himself. In fact, what he's bringing through here is that he's an apostle himself. He's on the same level as the 12 apostles in Jerusalem. The primary qualification for an apostle was to have seen and be taught by Jesus and to be a witness of his resurrection. And that was Paul's experience on his his trip to Damascus when Jesus met him and saved him and commissioned him. He's not saying the other apostles don't matter or that the Galatians don't need to listen to them. But he's saying that they should listen to him just as much as they listen to the others. And they should have a confidence that the gospel that they first heard from his mouth is the same true gospel that Peter and James and all the other apostles also preached. A gospel straight from Jesus. Now we'll look a little bit more at the actual ministry of Paul as an apostle next week. But this week I want to focus on what Paul says about his own conversion, how he became a Christian and how that confirms the gospel that he preached. Firstly, see the contrast between what he was before and after meeting Jesus, verses 13 to 14. He was the most unlikely person to ever become a Christian. He was violently trying to destroy the church. And as well as that, he had a great future in Judaism as a Pharisee. His status amongst the Jews was so high that the high priest authorised him to lead the persecution of the church and have Christians arrested and executed on behalf of the Sanhedrin. But then, within three years of that, people were glorifying God because of Paul, saying, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. We struggle to find anyone else in history who's made such a radical change from one extreme to its opposite. People might change in their thinking from the left to the right of politics, from having one set of values to another. But when someone moves between polar opposites, we'd normally say that either something terrible or something miraculous has happened. Paul went from hating Christ to loving him, from zeal to destroy the church to zeal to build up the church, from authorising people to be stoned to being willing to be stoned himself for Christ. 
from a man of violence to a man of peace. The point is this cannot happen. This could not have happened apart from the working of the power of God through the gospel of Jesus. Secondly, let's look at how Paul actually speaks of his conversion in verses 15 and 16. These verses show how behind a person believing in Jesus is this great extensive work of God. And these verses will enable us to understand how anyone becomes a Christian. Our own life circumstances and journey might be radically different from Paul's, but the work that the Father does in us to bring us to his Son through the work of the Spirit is the same for all of us. So firstly, see the the sovereign purpose of God for us in eternity. He who had set me apart before I was born. Now this is the aspect of uh, God's work of salvation that we probably think of the least, maybe because it's about something that happened long before we even existed. Maybe it's a part of God's work that we struggle with the most uh, because we can't comprehend it or we don't want to accept it. We prefer to think that we're a Christian because of our free will choice of Christ. But the scriptures tell us that we're only Christians because of God's free will choice of us. It's not because we invited Jesus into our lives, it's because Jesus invited us into his. Ephesians 1, 4-5 says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It was according to the purpose of his will, which he exercised even before the creation of the world, that we were chosen, predestined to be adopted as sons. That isn't a statement about gender there, by the way. It's a statement about status in the family, the son as the heir of the father. Now, this isn't fatalism, as it can sometimes be caricatured, because It's not just blind fate, it is the personal loving action of God the Father. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's family language. Foreknowledge doesn't mean that God merely knows what the future holds. This is personal He had each one of his people close to his heart even before we existed. His affection was set upon us from before the beginning. So his creation of the universe and of each one of us flowed from his personal loving plan that we might know his love. 2 Timothy 1, 8-9 says that God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. See how we're not saved because of our works, but neither does it say we're saved because of our faith, but because of his own purpose and grace, which 
he'd already designated as ours before he created the world. And so Peter, in his letter, addresses his readers as elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There's that grace and peace again. That is the uh, the outworking of the gospel, the personal truth of the gospel. You see what comes first, the foreknowledge of God the Father, which preempts any work of the Spirit to sanctify us or the sprinkling of Christ's blood. And then in Revelation, uh, as John is speaking about his vision of this terrible beast which mimics the work of Christ and uh, leads the world astray, he says, and all who dwell on earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So if you're a Christian, it's because the Father wrote your name in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. That means he'd already decided before creation existed, before humanity was made from the dust, before sin entered the world and brought death and the curse, that you would be redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Sending the Son wasn't plan B. You didn't think of it only once people had sinned. It was always plan A, so that you might not only be a creature made in his image to live for the praise of his glory, but that you might also be a trophy of his grace and mercy to all the more magnify his glory and grace. So you're not saved because you went forward at an altar call or you were baptised or you came to the conclusion that Christianity makes sense or because you turned your life around. You're saved because the Father planned your salvation in eternity. Now that's why we can say and really the only reason we can say that salvation is by grace alone. Which brings us to the second point. He who called me by his grace. Romans 8, 29-30 tells us those whom he foreknew he also predestined and those he predestined he also called. If God choosing us was by pure grace then so too was his calling of us which he does through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus. When and how did you first hear the gospel? You may not remember if you've been hearing it from childhood or you may be able to pinpoint the very first time that you heard about Jesus or the first time that it really came to you. However it happens, whether it was through no conscious choice of your own as a little child or through your own exploration and research and response when you were older, it was still by God's grace that you heard the call to come to Jesus and find rest for your soul. Now the Bible speaks of God's calling in two ways. On one level, all people everywhere 
are commanded to repent. And we're called to proclaim the gospel to everyone, every person, regardless of whether we think they're going to respond in faith or not. But on another level, we know that not everyone who hears the gospel will obey it. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 22 of a king who sent out invitations for his son's wedding banquet. But those whom he'd invited refused to come. So instead, he sent out more invitations far and wide and he filled his hall with guests, just not those who had originally been invited. And among those guests was a man who wasn't wearing wedding clothes. That symbolised someone who has entered the visible church, the community of God's people, but isn't actually a member of Christ through faith in him. This man was cast out. And Jesus concluded this parable with, for many are called, but few are chosen. So not all who hear the gospel of Jesus are chosen, but all who are chosen by God will hear the call. Those whom the Father foreknew, whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life, he will ensure that they not only hear the gospel, but that in hearing it they will be enabled to hear the call and respond by coming and trusting in Jesus. But grace speaks not just of God's sovereignty in his actions, it also speaks of the fact that we don't deserve this salvation. What had Paul done to deserve God's calling? He had in fact done the opposite. His zeal for his Jewish religion and his thorough knowledge of the scriptures did nothing to earn God's favour. God didn't call him because he thought, this man Paul, with all of his knowledge and learning and zeal, he'll make a really good Christian. Here's, my, here's a good PR strategy. I'll save a man who's smart and literate and eloquent so that he can use his entrepreneurial skills to build the church. No, God's strategy was actually the opposite. As Paul himself explained in 1 Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. God saved Paul because Paul was a great sinner and he showed him that everything Paul might have called upon to qualify himself was all garbage in comparison to knowing Christ. So the Father didn't call you because he saw in you some potential to do great things. He didn't call you because you have some intrinsic value or worth. He called you so that he could display his mercy and patience and grace in calling sinners like you and me to himself. Thirdly, we're told that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. That little word to in the Greek can be translated either as to or in. So it could be 
he revealed his son to me or he revealed his son in me. The way you translate it depends on the context and some English translations see the context to say in me and others like this version see it as meaning to me. The truth is the context allows for either way of translating and that doesn't make the verse vague or unclear, it actually makes it deeper and richer because it allows for both to and in. God was pleased to reveal his son to me and then as a result he revealed his son in me. The two go together. The Father's goal for us is that we will display the glory of Christ by being transformed into his image but he begins that work by revealing his glory to us. 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it this way, we with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. You can't see the glory of God in Jesus and not be transformed by it to resemble it. The Father's making us more and more like Jesus by revealing more and more of Jesus to us. That's how he does the work of glorification. So Romans 8.30 concludes, those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. So here's the full sovereign work of God in salvation, in making a person, a Christian, from eternity past with his foreknowledge, setting us apart before we were born, to the present day action of him calling us to himself through the preaching of the gospel and revealing his son to us and his ultimate goal for eternity future in which he's using everything now to bring us to glory into the perfect likeness of Jesus. But there's a fourth aspect of this work that's mentioned and it's the only part of this that involves our actions. Along with our salvation comes a vocation. It's in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Now we need to be careful how we read and apply this to us. Paul was clearly unique in his, of his vocation and his ministry. God used him like he's used no one else to establish the gospel right across the Roman Empire amongst both Jews and Gentiles and to obviously write nearly half of the books that are in the New Testament. So we, we shouldn't presume, as occasionally we might see people do, that God is automatically going to give us a ministry as significant and world-changing as Paul. But we can be sure that if we've been chosen and called and justified and glorified, it's not to be simply passive members of the kingdom. The grace of God is dynamic, it's powerful and when it takes hold of us, it propels us into the Father's purpose to be active participants in the life and the mission of Christ and his church. As Jeff Bingham put it, the sons of God are the servants of all. 
The New Testament speaks of us as sons and daughters of God and with this title that emphasises our status in God's family, that we are heirs with Jesus. But it also speaks of us as servants of God and that's a title that emphasises our activity in the kingdom of God. As we know ourselves to be redeemed by Jesus who is not only the son but he is the servant whom we've recently been seen in Isaiah. Like Jesus, our sonship flows into doing the Father's will. Whatever that specific vocation might look like for each one of us, whether you're a pastor, a doctor, a factory worker, an administrator, a stay-at-home parent, we need to view it as a vocation and in light of God's calling on us. Uh, through Jesus. We all have in common this vocation to be ambassadors of Christ wherever he places us, to live our lives, to do whatever we do to the glory of God, not to serve ourselves but to serve Christ. So it's only the true gospel of Christ crucified that can save and it's only the true gospel that can produce the fruits of a Christ glorifying life. But one thing that knowing the true gospel will never produce or should never produce is arrogance. Paul received a revelation, he says, to go to Jerusalem a second time and that revelation was a prophecy that there was going to be a famine across the region. Uh, You can read about it in Acts 11. And Paul was one of those who was chosen to take financial aid to the poor Christians in Judea. That was his uh, trip, his second trip to Jerusalem. So this was an opportunity then for him to meet with the apostles in Jerusalem and to talk about this gospel that he'd been preaching for 14 years in order, he says, to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. God's word and the gospel are infallible, but we're not. And Paul recognised this. Even as a messenger of Christ, he wasn't immune from drifting from the truth or losing sight of the heart of the gospel or requiring of people a response the gospel doesn't call for or leaving out things the gospel does call people to. So even after 14 years of ministry, Paul knew he needed to be accountable to others in his desire to make Christ known. Knowing the truth doesn't make us arrogant, it makes us humble. Because we know the truth hasn't come to us through our cleverness or diligence, but, as Paul said, by a revelation of Christ, by the work of the Holy Spirit. We can't take any credit for standing firm for not forsaking Christ and staying away from false gospels. We must be utterly dependent upon the Spirit to understand his word, to speak his word and to remain true to the faith once delivered. Now we need to see that Paul here, he's he's speaking of his ministry, not his personal assurance of salvation. He wanted to be sure that he was staying faithful to the pure gospel as he preached and taught and encouraged the churches. 
But as we've just seen, personal salvation depends on God's work in us, not our work or diligence or even our strength of faith. Do you know that the Father set you apart, called you by grace and revealed his Son to you and in you? Then be assured you're a true Christian. But also be aware that there will be times for all of us when we waver, when we make mistakes, when we act hypocritically, as we'll see next week when we look at when Peter had to be confronted for acting in a way that undermined the gospel of grace. Because we're fallible, we will sometimes say the wrong thing. We will sometimes miscommunicate the gospel message and maybe knowing that stops you from being as bold as you could be to workmates or neighbours or friends or family or in being fully involved in the life and ministry of the church. But knowing our weakness is actually what qualifies us to be involved in the ministry of the gospel. Knowing that we are weak and fallible enables us to step aside and let Jesus be front and centre so that it's his glorious grace that shines, not us. So let us step out in confidence, confidence in the sovereign, gracious power of God in the gospel that has saved us and confidence that as we speak the word of the gospel, no matter how faltering or stammering or trembling we may be, his power will be at work in us to save and to transform other people. Let's pray.